Hi, this is Chris, the Reluctant Psalm, coming to you from uh, quarantine week six, I think, um, somewhere along there. Um, here to talk about wine, but also talk about the current state of affairs of San Francisco, uh, as well as just some personal investigation that's been going on throughout the quarantine. So just to kind of get started, I have an Instagram account set up under the Reluctant Psalm. I'm sorry, Reluctant Psalm. Uh, because I tried to set the account up the reluctant psalm. Uh, let me get through the setup process and then immediately said the account was not available. Uh, so then I set up another under reluctant psalm. Uh, from what I understand, that kind of happens sometimes when people are trying to create accounts uh, that are maybe original accounts or maybe somebody actually had that account before me. Not quite sure, but not a big deal. So under the Instagram reluctant psalm, you'll see some pictures of wine, some pictures of beer, some pictures of food. Eventually, there will be some pictures of liquor, just kind of a little tidbit of information to go along with it or a personal memory. Uh, And then eventually, as I go on, there will be uh, reviews of wine on a more consistent basis and a little bit more analytical uh, recognition of the wines uh, and a little less of my personal story or my personal memories of those wines. So that being said, uh, throughout this quarantine in San Francisco, which is where I am, I have uh, been trying a lot of wines, but also doing a lot of soul searching, if you will. The wines that I've been trying are just things that I've been sitting on for quite a while from my history with a wine distributor and working for other restaurants and just things that I've bought personally uh, personally from uh, wineries, wine clubs, retail shops things like that, just have put together quite a large um, collection of wine that I just want to kind of move through. Some things could obviously age a lot longer, but I feel like it's probably not bad to get in and try them and just see how they're evolving throughout the process, especially things that I have multiple bottles of. As most people know, it's kind of the best way to judge the wine is over uh, an extended period of time and being able to um, taste the wine as it evolves and, and see how it develops. So uh, along with uh, checking in on some wines that I may have had several bottles of and depleting bottles that I only had one of, I found a lot of really fun little gems and little things like that. One of the ones that I tried recently is uh, Palumbo White Blend. Uh, Palumbo is a winery in Temecula, California. Funny story, I, my parents got into wine uh, at a late age. I was already into the wine business prior to them being into wine. Uh, They went to Temecula to go to some wineries and went and tasted a lot of wineries. And actually, Palumbo is one of their favorites. So fast forward five years, and I go to Temecula with uh, a past um, acquaintance, and we go for a Spartan race. Well, Spartan race is an obstacle course kind of marathon thing. So it was quite easy. It was kind of in the hill country of Temecula. Um, Really nice, beautiful property. Uh, well-orchestrated course. Um, Anyways, both uh, myself and my acquaintance were very interested in wine and both were working in the wine industry. And so we thought it would be beneficial to go and taste wineries. Well, she had a little bit of a different mindset um, and wanted to have an itinerary, things that we went and tasted and just really kind of got into the wineries that had the best reviews or had the most interesting varietals, things like that. I, on the other hand, am a bit of a wanderer. I kind of want to just 
drive down the road and stop at every little winery that I can. So there was a little bit of both that were going on. Stopped at a few wineries and really enjoyed them. Well, we just happen into this winery, pull up, dirt road, kind of a back set tasting room and walk up and I see the name Palumbo, but it doesn't really register with me that my parents have enjoyed it quite a few times. So we go into the winery and most of the people working in the tasting room have t-shirts, cargo shorts, flip-flops. It's really laid back, especially considering some of the other tasting rooms that we were in during our time in Temecula and during our time uh, tasting throughout the wineries of Temecula. So one of the things I noticed was a lot of wineries in Temecula started producing things like Fermentino and Sangiovese, and I thought it was really interesting to see those grapes coming alive in such an interesting area of California, so far south from Paso Robles, Napa, Sonoma, and obviously much further south than some of the other more prominent growing regions in the United States, but the West Coast specifically, um, Oregon, Washington. So I thought to myself, I'm really into Italian wine. I'm still to this day kind of into Italian wine. I, I try to try everything. But at the time, I was married to Italian wine, and I was working in an Italian restaurant. So drinking Italian wine was just kind of second nature. It went with every meal I had. It went with every table that I had come in and sit down. Every time I recommended a bottle, it was almost always an Italian bottle of wine. Now, this restaurant wasn't a world-class restaurant by any means, but the wine list was something that I had picked out myself, and it was something that was very personable to me. Um, it was wines that we could sell in the market that we were in. That market was Galveston, Texas. Galveston is about an hour south of Houston, Texas. Um, old school town, uh, big culinary scene, uh, not a lot of exposure to the wine industry, certainly not as much as uh, places like Houston, um, which have a little bit more traffic uh, internationally and globally. So working in Galveston, I kind of fell in love with wine working in another Italian restaurant, kind of bounced around restaurants, trying different things. Anyways, so I was in Temecula and I was very interested in trying these Italian varietals, all of which that, in my personal opinion, didn't really hold up to the classic representation of those wines. Uh, not to say that they were not good, and not to say that they were not enjoyable, but I kind of had a stigma in my brain about what this grape should taste like and what it should be. And, you know, oftentimes I, I like to consider grapes kind of like people. Um, just because they are raised in a different area and just because they're exposed to a different environment doesn't mean that they're any better or any worse. I, I think that, you know, obviously there are some effects that can go into wine and some post-harvest manipulation that can go on that can really negatively affect the wine or positively affect the wine. But in Temecula specifically, I was all about Sangiovese. Everybody I went to had Sangiovese, and I thought that it was kind of odd given that the esteem of Brunello or even the accessibility but consistency of wines like Chianti, Chianti Classico, Sepidiore, things of the sort, could even be considered to be somewhat passable for a good wine in what's considered to be a little-known region in California. And obviously, now it has a little bit more acclaim, it's a little bit more well-known, but at the time specifically, Temecula was not on the wine map. And when I told people, oh, I went to Temecula, I went to wine country, everybody said, that's not wine country. 
and I kind of got in my head before I went on the trip that I wouldn't be impressed by many of the wineries. So we walk into Palumbo. Upon entrance, the tasting room is not incredibly impressive. There's dogs wandering around the tasting room, which I really liked. It kind of made it feel a little bit more homey. But that being said, I wasn't expecting to taste an incredible representation of a grape like Sangiovese. So we walk in and I walk up and the tasting, I think at the time, was $15 or $20 for three wines. You could pick the wines and most of the wines they said were the wines that were coming on their next wine club shipment. So I taste the wines and the first wine that I taste is 100% Sangiovese that's grown in Temecula, right on the property. The wine was fantastic. It was transcendent. It was, to me, an appropriate representation of Sangiovese outside of its traditional roots in Tuscany. And I thought to myself, how can this be? How can I be wrong? Because oftentimes in life, we put ourselves in this role of having defined borders of what's right and what's wrong and what we like and what we don't like. And through wine and through drinking wine, I've experienced these things that I can't even begin to tell you my appreciation for. But being proven wrong is a really important role in development as a person or as a human, in my opinion, uh, Uh, But especially in my lifetime, as I've been proven wrong many a time, and I hope to be proven wrong over and over and over again, because I think that it's a great teacher, much like failure. Um, Things of those sorts, negatives always have positives. It's kind of a balance. So I try this wine. The wine's fantastic. And I just kind of sit there for a second and mull this over in my head and kind of doubt it and think like, "Ah, I must have been to too many wineries today. I'm experiencing palate fatigue. I Maybe I'm kind of drunk, even though I don't feel like I'm drunk. And I start trying to justify why the wine wasn't as good as it was. And not to say that we didn't have great wines in Temecula. Obviously, we did, especially some Cabernets, some Merlots, some Pinot Noirs, some more traditional California-style uh, varietals. But I try this Sangiovese, and I try it again, and I try it again, and each time I try this wine, I keep taking a step back, and it's this little tiny step of humility, this, this step of self-discovery, self-awareness, this, self of, this step of respect. It's, it's kind of like I'm recreating myself in this moment, or I'm tearing down a border, I'm breaking down a wall that's going to allow me to become something more or understand something more intently. So the next wine I try is a Cabernet Sangiovese blend. So I immediately in my head think, oh, well, this wine probably won't be as good as the last wine. Or maybe it will be, but the Cabernet will obviously stand forward as Cabernet often does. Well, again, I was proven wrong. And Happily so. I, again, really love being proven wrong. So I sat there and I just kind of waited and I waited and the partner that I was with says that she really enjoys the wines and starts asking questions. And and I'm just kind of 
befuddled and dumbfounded as I sit there in my humility and kind of my embarrassment with myself. I certainly never told the winery that, hey, I don't think your wines will be good. I just sat there and I took it in. I took in my failure. I took in my my wrongdoing. I took in my injustice to this wine-growing region, these wineries, and their ability to grow grapes beyond that of a regular California winery. So while the questions are being asked, one of the first questions is, is Sangiovese, where'd you get it? To which the reply is that the Sangiovese is actually cuttings that have been transplanted from Brunello de Montalcino, hence some of the quality. Now, these wines in Temecula, most of the wines at least, in the time that we went were about $30 to $40. The wines at this tasting room were about $50 to $60. Some of them were $75, and anything in their library collection or an older vintage was $85 or above. Um, so that being said, again, in my head, I kind of tried to mull over whether or not it was worth it for me to buy one of these bottles of wine. And as I sat there and I listened to this tasting room employee in a t-shirt, cargo shorts, and flip-flops, school me on wine. Not school me, not correcting me, telling me I'm wrong, just expose me to this amount of information that I didn't even understand there was because I was so arrogant and closed-minded to the idea of being proven wrong. I truly fell in love with this winery. Now, that being said, I immediately became a wine club member, but there were issues. I ran into an issue with getting the wine shipped to Texas. Obviously, at the time, uh, and I think still to this day, Texas will not allow certain wineries to ship into the state, but also the winery is small enough that they weren't trying to ship to Texas. They weren't trying to ship to Europe. They weren't trying to expose themselves on a global market. They were just trying to expose themselves on a little bit more of a boutique market. So I contacted my parents and they said that they would gladly, being uh, located in South uh, Southern California, go and pick up my wine club membership every time that it came in. So I would get little pictures from my mom and dad of them at the tasting room and enjoying a glass of wine and saying, wow, this wine's really great. We can't wait for you to try it. And when I would come back to Southern California to visit, or they would come out to Galveston, Texas to visit, we would bring bottles back and forth, you know, whether it's beer or liquor or wine, but they would always bring me my wine club membership shipment. Or when I would go back, we would knock a few bottles out to try to uh, reduce the weight in the suitcase on the next trip. So... The wine that I got was white blend. The blend was really great, um, Grenache Blanc driven. So I tried this wine, 2014 vintage, in what's now 2020, and I was thoroughly impressed by the structure and concentration of the wine and the depth of character that it had. Uh, I think that Maybe I had some issues storing it, given that this wine was located in Galveston, Texas, made it to Southern California, and then made it to San Francisco. There was probably some issues on my end. So to me, the wine was showing a little bit of age, but it wasn't off-putting by any means. It was just this maturity to the wine that was really welcomed and really lovely. So I tried this wine, and 
after trying this wine, it brought me back to some of my memories and how long I've been into wine and how long I've been drinking wine and how arrogant and closed-minded I was at the time of tasting these wines from this winery. So I thought about it quite a lot and I remembered that humility. I remembered that embarrassment. I remembered that that feeling of growth and I slowly started remembering all of these other things. Obviously, there's plenty of time because uh, coronavirus, uh, shelter-in-place orders, things of the sort. So not a lot going on here. Plenty of time to think and drink or drink and think. So I tried that. I thought, you know what? I should really kind of push myself. I should try to become something more than what I am. And I should remember that I'll never know everything. And the second I think I do is the second I'm the most wrong I'll ever be in my life. So I thought, now's the time. Now's the time for me to start pursuing my certifications. So I'm currently working as a SOM at a restaurant in San Francisco. I'm an assistant SOM. And I don't really have any certifications. I got my level one a few years ago working for a distributor, and uh, they paid for it. So I went to the class. I took the class. I enjoyed it, and I passed the test. Well, now I'm a little past my three-year window of when I'm supposed to be taking my certified SOM. So one of the steps I'll be trying to take throughout this podcast, throughout my Instagram page, is trying to keep everyone updated with what's going on with me pursuing my certifications. Now, I'm certainly not under the impression that I will make it to Master Psalm anytime soon if that's a path that I choose to pursue. However, I do think that it's important to let people know that some of these tests aren't as hard as some people say they are. And I think for me, living in Texas for as long as I was and not being as exposed to the wine industry as I was, when I heard the the word sommelier, I thought of a superhero. I thought of a unattainable position for somebody of my stature. I thought of this holy being that was so perfect and so rare. It was like a unicorn. And throughout working for the distributor and being more exposed to Psalms, I realized that they're just people. They're hobbyists. They're fans of wine. They're passionate in wine. And even if they're not, they're passionate in the service of wine or they're passionate in the knowledge or theory of wine, maybe not necessarily drinking it or pairing it. So after some time of working alongside Psalms and spending more time with Psalms, I kind of realized that, oh, maybe this is something I can do. That was four years ago and I still haven't done it. So I'm sitting here now during quarantine and considering all of the other paths that I might want to take and all of the other things I might want to do. So for anybody that doesn't know, uh, Psalm is an individual that represents the court of master sommeliers. There's four levels. There's introductory Psalm, certified Psalm, advanced Psalm, and master Psalm. So introductory Psalm is a test that basically takes place on exclusively wine theory. About 100 questions, multiple choice. It's a two-day course. You go in, sit in class for eight hours the first day, about six hours the second day. Get to try some great wines. Get to see how Psalms break down the tasting profiles. You get to watch a mock service, but you don't participate in it. Level two, certified Psalm, is something that once you attain it, it will never 
be removed from your name. And that being said, there are certain things that you can do to have it removed from your name, but those are things that I don't really think many people consider or uh, have ever considered, such as cheating or stealing or things of the nature that would kind of um, cause you to be a poor representation of a wonderful, knowledgeable group of individuals. So certified psalm is something that I have been considering and always considered kind of reaching for. Um, Again, during this COVID-19 epidemic, pandemic, I um, unfortunately ran out of time to take my certified psalm. So I plan on sending an email and contacting the quartermaster sommeliers and explaining this and maybe possibly trying to have an opportunity to take the test. If I don't, I guess it's back to level one for me, which maybe isn't the worst thing. Maybe I can pass it with distinction this time. Maybe I can pass it with 100%. Um, But going back and learning the basics isn't always a bad thing. Taking a step back and remembering the essentials and the core of what the class is and what it's based off of is sometimes more valuable than just pushing through straight to the top. So aside from the psalm life, um, after working in the Houston market for quite a while with the distributor, I was exposed to WSETs and CSWs and all of these other acronyms that stand for wine geeks. Uh, Not always wine geeks, but sometimes wine teachers, fans of wine, things of the nature. So WSET is a program, Wine and Spirit Education Trust. It's a four-level program that basically is a feeder school into a master of wine. So the four levels, after you reach the fourth level and complete it, you receive your WSET diploma. Immediately following that, you can apply for Master of Wine program, which is a three-year course. Uh, It takes intensive practice and a ridiculous amount of knowledge. Um, Again, that being said, if I choose to pursue the WSET, I'm under no impression that I'll reach Master of Wine without trying or at all. Uh, If I don't, it's not the end of the world. Again, it's a chance to be humbled. It's a chance to be... um, to gain humility and and to kind of learn, okay, I need to work harder next time. Aside from those two, there's the CSW. CSW is a certified specialist of wine. And within that field is also a certified specialist of spirits. So both of these tests are based off of theory. You get a book, you have time to study, you take the test, you pass the test, and you get these initials after your name to put on your business card, to put in your email, wherever. Following those classes, you can take another step of education in those fields, which is actually a little bit more interesting than just passing a test. You have a CWE, Certified Wine Educator, and a CSE, Certified Spirit Educator. So both of these classes are obviously more difficult and the certifications are harder to get. But that being said, you take a little bit more of an integral role into teaching and, and learning along with that, because I think, along with a friend that I spoke to recently, that learning can sometimes be the best teacher. And saying things out loud to somebody can kind of show you what you know and what you don't know. Um, when I talked to him about it, I expressed a, a fear of speaking in front of people, which is strange because it's something that I do every day at work. Um, but for some reason, I felt scared of talking to a group of people who possibly know more than I do. 
again, I think that there's a bit of an arrogance that kind of goes into that. There's a bit of a ideal that I don't want to be uncomfortable. I don't want to be proven to not know something. And I don't want to be less than what I think I am. But there's always room to grow. So sitting here throughout quarantine, COVID-19, I have really been doing a ton of thinking about those things. And I've been doing a lot of thinking about how I'm going to move forward with my education in wine, but also how wine is going to affect me in my life in the long run. Forever, I thought I wanted to own a restaurant. It's what I've always wanted to do. 16, 17, 18, I started working in restaurants I always wanted to own. After a long time working with a lot of small owners, I realized it's not all the glitz and glam that I thought it was. It's uh, much harder, much more strenuous, stressful uh, job or role that you take on when you take on the role of ownership. Even if you have a great manager or a great team, there's still a lot of other stresses and anxiety that goes into that. Again, not to say that I don't think that I could rise to the challenge or that I wouldn't want to rise to the challenge, but recently I've been doing some thinking about opening a retail store. And if I open a retail store, what would it look like? Would it be beer, wine, spirits? Well, given that we are in California, Selling spirits is kind of difficult. You have to get a license to sell liquor. Um, And oftentimes the only way to get that license is to buy an existing business that has the license or buy a license from a private individual or enter the lottery to attain one of these licenses. And even within that, depending on which county you're in, you might not even be allowed to own a liquor license. You might not even be allowed to sell liquor. So... If I was going to open a store that was retail, sometimes I think it'd be great to open beer and wine because then I wouldn't have to jump through those hurdles. But if an opportunity arose that I could purchase a liquor license, I could always apply it to the business or move locations and possibly sell my previous license for beer and wine and purchase this liquor license at a new location. Or, you know, maybe the chance will come up where I actually have a chance to buy a liquor license with an existing business. So considering that you are going to open a retail store, I think one of the important things to take into account is your interests and what you like. I mean, you don't really have to. You could be the 7-Eleven on the corner. You could be the business that just kind of sells the same beers and sells the same wines as everybody else or the same liquor. doesn't sell anything unique. And you know what? There's business in that. You'll get neighborhood business. You'll get consistent clientele. You're not going to, it's not a bad business plan. It's just not something that I would necessarily want to do. So when I think about this and I think about kind of what I would want in a retail business, I think about, you know, a a great wine selection. I think about uh, awesome beer selection and I think about local things, but I also think about beers and wines from other regions in the world and other regions in the United States. I don't think just if I owned a store in Napa that I would only carry wine from Napa. It seems kind of counterintuitive. Obviously, if there's tourists and they're coming in and they forgot to buy a bottle to take home or they need a bottle for their hotel room or their Airbnb, it's not a bad idea. But if I want to have the relationship that I have with the guests, 
it's going to be somewhat on an educational aspect. They'll come in. They'll ask me questions. I'll expose them to new things and new ideas and new products and new concepts. And hopefully, they'll do the same for me. If you've ever had a friend that you're really into something with and you guys have the same hobby and the same interests, oftentimes they can teach you things just as well as you teach them things. And I think that's important, surrounding yourself around people that care and creating a retail establishment that focuses on uniqueness and diversity, I think really builds an environment for something like that. So recently there's been a particular uh, establishment that comes to memory. The establishment is called The Whip-In. The Whip-In is a retail store, kind of convenient store uh, in Austin, Texas. So originally it was a convenience store, and I might get this wrong, and I apologize to the Whip-In or anybody uh, incorporated with the business, but from my understanding, it used to be a gas station or kind of convenience store, and it was just kind of the same old, same old. Well, there was an Indian restaurant that opened up kind of in the back half of it and shared the parking lot, which kind of makes it unique in itself. Well, then, again, from my understanding, I could be wrong, the person that purchased it was really interested in wine and really interested in rosé and also beer. And the first time I walked into this place, it was like a magic world. It was like I took a step through a gateway uh, and I came into a, a dream, an existence of somebody's, somebody else's, something that they created, something that was their passion and their love and their hobby. And you could just feel it the second you walked in the door. It was transcendent. I, I still to this day remember when I walked into the weapon. So I walk in, there's rows and rows and rows and rows of beer, craft beers. And this is in Austin. There's a lot of great breweries in Austin. There's a, a lot of great wineries in the Texas Hill Country AVA. Uh, but this place is just loaded. It's stacked. It's, it's packed to the gills with really great craft beers that I have a really hard time getting in Galveston at the time. And still to this day, there's not a lot of places that carry some of the beers that they have and have the ability to carry. You make your way to the back of the convenience store and you're greeted by the traditional refrigerator doors that you would see Gatorades, waters, and juices in. And these refrigerators are full of rosé. Full of rosé. I think I counted something along the lines of 150 different labels of rosé. And that's just regular still rosé. That's not including the sparkling rosés. It's not including all the other wine that they had in store. However, the focus was rosé. And the reason that the focus was the rosé is because of the pre-existing restaurant that was built in the back of this establishment. So a person bought the business and then chose symbiosis, chose to work alongside their neighbor or their partner and, and in turn enhance each other's business and enhance guests' experiences along the way. That, to me, is something that I think is truly special. And in all of the retail stores I've been to and all of the wine shops I've been in, that one specifically stands out. And, and again, it's not because of an extensive Cabernet, California Cab section or a, a crazy Bordeaux section or a crazy 
Pinot Noir section. No, no. It was rosé. It was rosé and beer. Uh, you know, kind of, at the time, not really highly thought of. I mean, rosé wasn't as hot as it is now. Um, it was a thing, but in Texas, at least, I'm sure in California and other regions of the world, I'm, I'm totally wrong. I'm especially Provence. Um, but at that time in Texas, rosé wasn't a thing, especially dry rosé. It was kind of Behringer White's Inn ruled the world when it came to rosé. I'm sure you could probably get a nice glass of Sutter Home rosé or Franzia rosé if you went to a restaurant and you were specifically seeking out rosé. But prior to that, there wasn't a lot of really great dry rosés or rosés made of Pinot or rosés made of Cab or any of these really great varietals that had been transformed into something more than just their traditional representation. And the passion for the food and for the beer is really what I remember. I never met the owner. I talked to the employee briefly, but the place had a heartbeat of its own. It was like its own being. And it certainly wasn't pretty, but it certainly wasn't Frankenstein. It was well thought out. It was well built. It was well structured. It was itself. It was unique. It was a, a being. So I've talked about a winery that I really enjoy, and I've talked about a uh, retail store that I really enjoy. And so now maybe I'll talk about something else, like uh, restaurants that I've been to that I really enjoyed also. Or let's say, I don't know, a particular psalm that I think is particularly impressive. So the psalm that comes to mind's name is Sean Beck. And I've followed Sean Beck for a while uh, when I was in Texas and I first heard of him. I thought, wow, oh, he's a psalm. Again, at that time, I was a little underexposed to what that word meant. Not to take anything away from the title, but I considered him to kind of be like just living, breathing wine. So anyways, as I kind of watched Sean Beck through social media, and unfortunately only had a few chances to dine in his establishments, it doesn't mean that I wasn't downloading his wine list off the internet and looking at it and studying it every time I got a chance. So this man is in charge of several restaurants in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, the wine list, the beverage program. He is in charge of Hugo's. He's in charge of uh, Zochi. He's in charge of Caracol. Um, and I don't know if I said Hugo's, but uh, Backstreet Cafe also. And I think they've added a fifth to their repertoire since then, but I could be wrong. Um, it's been a while since I've been back to the city. Uh, but anyways, watching the chronicles of this guy and watching the things that he posted and studying his lists was the first exposure that I really had to kind of a craft boutique wine selection. And it's not to say that there weren't other establishments in Houston. There were, but there wasn't an exposure in Galveston specifically that had that repertoire, that name, that power in the name that Sean Beck had. And so he was kind of the first person that I started watching. He does this really fun segment called The Messy Cellar, where he goes in and he talks about a wine or he talks about a specific thing that's interesting to him that day. 
And so I used to watch him all the time, and uh, he started doing them now since quarantine, and I'm still watching them to this day. Sean, thank you very much for all of the things that you've done and all of the things you continue to do for the wine industry, and especially the wine industry in Texas, Houston specifically, and thank you for everything you do to encourage young people and educate young people uh, who are new in the wine industry, as well as people who've been in the industry for quite a while. So the first time that I met Sean, I was in the restaurant Backstreet Cafe. I went in to meet my close friend who was another distributor, and I'm pretty sure that I just walked in to say hi. Uh, I was down the street at the distributor that I was working at, and he said, hey, stop by. So anyways, I walk in, and Sean's sitting down doing a tasting with him. They're having a tasting, and they're drinking wines that I don't even know how to pronounce. They're drinking wines that I don't even know how to, to, to determine where this wine is from. I think one was Greek. I think one was from Mexico. And I think one was from an odd region in France or Italy. I can't remember. But again, it was one of these moments of humility. It was one of these moments of like, wow, I should really sharpen my skills and I should really push myself more because I want to be better. I want to be able to sit at a table with these guys and carry along with a conversation and be able to contribute to the conversation, be able to learn from them, and however ignorant it may sound, teach them something. Uh, obviously, I could, but you know, time considering. Uh. So anyways, all of these things that I've learned throughout my life, I think, are lessons that were very important to me at the time, but I think that maybe they kind of got doled down. And quarantine, I think, is kind of a really good thing in some ways and a really bad thing in other ways. Obviously, I think that people dying and I think people being hospitalized is terrible. And I certainly think that businesses closing because they can't financially remain stable enough to open is awful. I, I think that there's plenty of negative things. But I think if you look at it as just negative, you're kind of removing the complexity of the epidemic or pandemic that it is. Part of that is, is life has slowed down. Life has calmed down. Uh, I see in the city all the time in San Francisco that people go out to eat a lot and people don't cook at home a lot. And people don't really spend a lot of time at home. They go out and eat and then they go to a bar afterwards and they go home. After they're at the bar, they go to bed, they wake up, they go to work and they do it all over again. You kind of get in this cycle where you forget to slow down and you forget to take some time to recharge yourself and kind of, you know, focus on what's important. Cooking, uh, for me, has been something that has kind of kept me sane. Uh, I was lucky enough to um, go to one of my family properties recently and do some yard work there, which was great because uh, an apartment in San Francisco is rarely large, especially if it's affordable. So the 600 square feet that I live in isn't quite conducive to a productive lifestyle or productive day in that matter. So there was some reading going on and there's some cooking going on. And, and aside from the yard work, there was a lot of drinking 
going on. It's a lot of wine. It's a lot of beer. Some of the beer was just whatever beer was available. wasn't necessarily something that I was particularly fond of or that I really was interested in drinking. It was just what was there. And I can say, again, I, I learned something in this. I learned that if I hold myself to a higher standard than everybody else, or if I hold my palate to a higher level than everybody else, then I'm removing myself from the complexity of life and humans and the complication that is difference. And, you know, after all of that hard yard work, there was really nothing wrong with an ice cold Coors Light. And maybe I'm biased. My dad always drank Coors Light. So for me, it was some of the first beer that I remember having. It kind of has a warm place in my heart. But honestly, I think after a long day at work and sweating in the hot sun in Southern California, any ice cold beer would have been delicious at that point. Um, and I think thinking less of uh, large produced beer, I wouldn't necessarily say cheap, um, but thinking less of a beer that is maybe uh, takes less effort to create or that's less complex in flavor is forgetting that that beer has a purpose and it has a place. And just like wines and just like spirits, on every level of the scale that they exist on, they have a place. They don't make barefoot Cabernet for Psalms. It's not why they make it. They make it for people who aren't comfortable with wine, or maybe are, or maybe don't want to spend a lot of money on wine. Maybe people who aren't so picky. Maybe somebody who just wants a nice, simple glass of wine. And there's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure that it's not something that I would be anxious to try, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't have its place. It doesn't mean that that wine doesn't serve a purpose. Oftentimes, those wines are the stepping stones for people who get into wine. I can say that the first time I got into wine, I was 19. I was dating an older woman and not that much older. She was 22 at the time, but I was able to ask her to purchase wine for me. However illegal that is, I won't name names because uh, this person actually did a great justice for me and and allowed me the opportunity to uh, progress and become the person that I am today, who obviously still needs a lot of polishing, a lot of refinement, and a lot of building, but I'm proud of nonetheless. So at 19, I start drinking wine, working in an Italian restaurant and not knowing anything. I started managing and not knowing anything about liquor, beer, or spirits and managing a restaurant is really difficult. And being 19 and managing a restaurant is really difficult if there's any focus on alcohol whatsoever. Not to say that it can't be done and not to say that people haven't done it before, just saying that it makes things a little bit more complex. So at 19, I started asking my ex-girlfriend to buy me a bottle of wine here and there. And I would have her buy me things that were something that a guest had asked about or something that somebody had mentioned is really good or somebody had recommended to me. And oftentimes, most of those wines, given the caliber of restaurant I was working in, were not ridiculously expensive. They were $10 bottles of Chianti. They were $15 bottles of Cabernet. They were $7 bottles of Chardonnay. 
And I wasn't scared of spending money on a wine like that. I wasn't scared that I wasn't going to enjoy it because it was seven bucks. If I could afford it for $7, I could just as easily cook with it if I didn't like it or give it to a friend or, you know, add some sugar and some brandy and, you know, really regret my decisions. But anyways, I tried wines and I wasn't a fan of them for a while and I thought in my head, I'll never enjoy wine. I don't think I'm ever going to get it. And I don't think I'll ever understand it. And I don't think I'll ever want to. Well, fast forward now 11 years and it is all I think about, all I talk about, and all that I do. And not to say that I certainly don't take a break from it. I do plenty of video games, especially during quarantine, because, you know, drinking wine at nine in the morning is, yeah, looked down on, even though I don't have a job service industry, laid off. Anyways, so after tasting several wines and after kind of enjoying some but not really getting it, I tried Chianti Classico. And it was Rocca della Mesi Chianti Classico, which if you know anything about Rocca della Mesi Chianti Classico, it's not a particularly expensive bottle of wine. It's not an unattainable bottle of wine. It's just a solid Chianti. And for me, it was really enjoyable. It was the first wine that stood out to me and the first wine that kind of grabbed me and picked me up and decided like, hey, you're going to get into wine. So I tried this wine and I thought in my head like, wow, I like Chianti. And I started thinking of it as just one one wine to rule them. Uh, But it wasn't. It was more complex than that. There was other Chiantis that I tried that maybe I wasn't a huge fan of. There was other Chiantis that I tried that I liked more. But I kept thinking in my head that I wasn't going to enjoy Cabernet ever. I thought, I hate Cab. It's too fruity. It's too juicy. I don't like it. Of course, at 19 years old, I had the world figured out and I knew what I was going to feel for the rest of my life and I knew everything. Obviously, again, many lessons later of being proven wrong and getting that sense of humility, I learned that that was not right. So I started tasting more wines and more wines, and I started drinking a lot of wines at the $10 price point because, you know, I wouldn't drink a bottle of wine at a night. I'd have half a bottle, I'd have half a bottle the next day, have half a bottle the next day after that, half a bottle the day after that. So it was affordable and it was convenient and it was comforting and I was learning a lot. And through those inexpensive wines, I was able to educate myself and and build my, my passion and really kind of get into a hobby of wine at the time. And now when I say hobby of wine, I wasn't a connoisseur by any means and I wasn't a fan of wine. It was just a hobby of mine to try to find something that I enjoyed and try to find something that I liked, try to find something that, you know, maybe stood out to me above others. So I remember tasting a lot of wines and I remember really just kind of not loving a lot of wines. And one day at work, somebody poured me a glass of uh, Amarone. The first time I tried Amarone, I really enjoyed it. 
And as somebody who drinks a lot of wine now, I still really enjoy Amarone. But I think Amarone was a really approachable wine for me at the time. It was kind of sweet, uh, or at least perceived to be sweet, not necessarily high in residual sugar. And it kind of had complexity without hurting my brain or blowing my palate or drying out my tongue. It was really lovely. So then I thought, okay, I only like Italian wine. Wrong. Again. I started drinking Cabernet. I enjoyed Cabernets, and I thought in my head, well, you know what? I'll never like Merlot. Wrong. I started liking Merlot. Duckhorn Merlot is one of the first ones that I remember. Duckhorn now and Duckhorn then are different, but as things happen in life, everything changes. Everything changes sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, and sometimes it's subjective. I don't necessarily think better or worse is a perpetual state. I don't think it's fixed into everybody's reality is the same. So better or worse is really just kind of a subjective thing. So I really love Duckhorn. And then I got into Pinot Noir. Unfortunately, I can't really remember the Pinot Noir that I got into, but the wine at the time was not really that well known. It was kind of out there, but it wasn't a big deal. Um, So I tried this Pinot Noir and I thought, okay, I kind of like it, but I don't really like French Pinot Noir. It's too earthy. There's not enough fruit. Well, little did I know that some of the finest wines in existence to this day, obviously besides the Premier Cruz of Bordeaux, is Grand Cru Burgundies. And a lot of those Grand Cru Burgundies are French Pinot Noir. So uh, as I've grown, I've been proven wrong many, many times. I like to say that I've lived a thousand lives through wine because I learn a lesson every time I paint something into a box and every time I think that I know everything or I can't be wrong. So through all of this lessons and trials and tribulation, I've really been able to kind of go back and reflect on these things through this time of quarantine and through this time of isolation, not self-isolation. I'm, you know, have a roommate, so it's not like I get a ton of time alone, but the time alone that I have or the quiet time that I have, or even time when I'm with that person, I still think a lot about these lessons and I think a lot about the experiences that I have and and the world that is the world now and the world as I perceive it, not necessarily the world is a fixed state. And the way that I look at the world now is it's really interesting, but again, complex. And I think that if you look at it as bad or good, you're removing the complexities. You, you're, anytime you paint something into a box, you're removing the complexities and you're removing the depth of that thing. And life is all about depth. Everything is all about depth. Um, and subjectiveness, you know, a shallow kiddie pool to a human might not be that deep, but to a chihuahua, it might be much deeper. And to an ant, it's an ocean. So it's all about perception. And part of my perception is that this time alone is really 
gives us all a chance to restart and renew ourselves and develop things and think about things and and create ourselves anew. Not that it's necessarily a cocoon that we're going to turn into butterflies and fly through the sky, but if we use it the right way and we appreciate it for what it is, it can really be a beneficial thing. It can really help us learn and it can really make us more than what we are. Because eventually, after being locked in your house all day, you're going to get bored of staring at Instagram, staring at Facebook, watching TikTok and Snapchat. Eventually, you're going to get bored of it. Not to say that you shouldn't do it, not to say that you can't do it, not to say that it's any of my business whether you do it or not. But eventually, distracting yourself isn't going to work anymore. And when you stop distracting yourself, you're going to be able to reflect. And upon reflection, you're going to be able to hopefully evolve, not devolve, because we don't ever want to do that. But some of the things that I'm realizing now is is that I feel as though society is constantly painting everything into a box. We're constantly painting anybody that we disagree with into a box. We're painting anything that we don't like into a box. We're painting everything into these boxes and just kind of removing the complexity from it. And I think it's a very humbling moment for me to be able to start this podcast and be able to take a step back and realize that I matter. I'm not just part of the collective. I'm me and I'm unique. And the second I start painting myself into a box and think that I'm just like everybody else or just like all of the others, or I'm just like any other psalm, or I'm just like any other guy, I remove the complexities from myself. And I think that those complexities are what makes life beautiful. So this podcast is really kind of for education for people or kind of just a sounding board for myself to educate myself to kind of talk about things and to kind of work my way through life. And uh, I hope you join me on this journey of discovering the complexities of life.